Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about five thousand in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, good afternoon, everybody. My name is Gene, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and it's so good uh, to worship with you this afternoon. Uh, If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you'll know that we've been going through a sermon series on miracles in the Bible, miracles in the Bible. And we've been spending a lot of time going through the miracles in the Gospel of John in particular. And what we've said is that John, unlike the other Gospel writers, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he doesn't record a lot of miracles, So in the other Gospels, Jesus is doing miracles all the time. He's he's healing the sick. He's calming storms. He's casting out demons. He's even raising the dead. Last week, we heard from Pastor Josh. He preached on Luke chapter 8 and just a part of Luke 8. And in just that one short passage, Jesus heals a woman who was suffering from chronic bleeding for 12 years And then he raises a 12-year-old girl from the dead. There are miracles everywhere. But John, he highlights just a few miracles, and he specifically calls them signs. Signs. And there are seven miracle signs of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And we've covered four of them already in this series. The first was Jesus turning water into wine. Then Jesus heals the official son. Jesus heals the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. Uh, Two weeks ago, our guest preacher, Dr. Michael Carrion, he preached on John 9, the man who was born blind. Next week, we're going to look at Jesus walking on water. And before Easter, we will look at Lazarus being raised from the dead by Jesus. But today... We're going to turn our attention to the fourth miracle sign in the Gospel of John. Jesus feeding the 5,000. And this miracle is unique because it is the only miracle of Jesus, aside from his resurrection, the only miracle of Jesus that comes up in Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John. It was the only one. And I think the reason for that is this miracle, it kind of marks an inflection point in Jesus's ministry. So if you remember Jesus's earlier miracles, when he was just starting off, he would do this a lot where he would do a miracle and then he would say, hey, hey, hey don't tell anyone what you saw. Don't, don't talk about it. He kind of does that in the beginning, but then what ends up happening is the word gets out his popularity skyrockets, and he's, he's literally thrust into the public arena. And he's known throughout the land as a rabbi and a miracle worker. And people come from all over the country to, to listen to him and to, to, to be healed by him. He's beloved by many, but he's also hated as well. He's a very controversial figure. And what we have in this miracle is this miracle is the crest of his popularity. It is the apex point. It's the height. After this miracle, what we see is a transition from Jesus's public ministry to a more private ministry focusing just on his disciples and Jesus preparing for his death. And this is clear in our chapter today, because John 6, it begins with huge crowds. But by the end of the chapter, they're all gone. They're all gone. John tells us that a crowd of about 5,000 men, so if you factor in women and children, it's likely three to four times the number of people. So we're talking the size of a crowd at a Knicks game at Madison Square Garden. But by the end of John 6... Everyone is gone. Everyone has left Jesus, and only Jesus and his disciples remain. Even after the crowds, they witness this amazing miracle. They don't survive till the end. They don't make it. And the question is, why? And I think at the heart of it, the crowds profoundly misunderstand Jesus in three ways. They misunderstand his power, they misunderstand his priorities, and they misunderstand his purpose. And while our gathering here, it's, it's nowhere near the size of the crowd in John 6, but there are still probably close to 400 people in this room right now. And the question for us is this, will we also misunderstand Jesus or will we get it? Will we grasp Jesus' power, his priorities, and his purpose for us? So first, we'll look at power. We see Jesus being underestimated uh, levels of that in this passage. Jesus, he, he kind of looks and he sees the crowds coming and he knows what he's going to do. He knows what he's going to do, but instead of just doing it, he kind of takes this opportunity for a teaching moment for his disciples. And he asks Philip a question. And he says, Philip, where can we go and buy bread for this crowd? And I think the reason he asks Philip is because Philip is from the area. This is Philip's hometown. So he's basically saying, Philip... You know all the bodegas and all the bakeries in the area. 
Hey, where do you think we can go to buy bread for everybody? And Philip, he, he responds, I think, the way that many of us would. Jesus, there's no way. Philip does the math. He says 200 denarii wouldn't even be enough. 200 denarii, that's like eight months' wages. So what Philip is saying is, Jesus, even if we had like $50,000, which we don't, that wouldn't even be enough. People would only have a little. And what we see is that Philip, his mind defaults to human effort. He's thinking, oh, it would cost this much. But he's probably also thinking a lot of things like, even if we had the money, what bakery would have the inventory to supply this? Maybe we could kind of crowdfund everybody and, and, and get everybody to contribute their lunches. Uh, maybe if we kind of gather some, a lot of wealthy donors. Uh, maybe if we launch a campaign, we can, we can begin. No, we can't do this. That's Philip. And I think if we're honest, isn't our reflex response to any need that we have the same? So this past week in our community group, um, my great breakout group, we were discussing human effort versus God's power. And one brother asked, he said this, if I lost my job and then... I busted my butt. I went uh, on countless interviews. I, I researched, I hustled, and then I found another job. And someone said, oh, God gave you another job. Wouldn't that discount and devalue my effort? So the question he's basically asking is this. What is the balance between human effort and God's power? And I think my answer to him was, hey, I don't think it's an either or, but more of a both and. I think there are many times where God does use human effort to provide for us. It's not you or God, it's both. But I think more often than not, many times we, what we see is that human effort falls short. It falls short. But what would it look like if any time I had a need, I didn't first go to, hey, what are my options here? What can I do? What do I need to start doing? Who do I need to call? But what would it look like if I went to Jesus first? Because so often, we first do everything we can to help ourselves and when that doesn't work and we're out of options, then we go to God as kind of like a last resort. And we say, God, I tried everything. I can't do it. You do it. Because that's the Philip in all of us. Not being able to see beyond human effort and imagine what God might be able to do. But there's another way. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Hey, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Andrew comes with a different perspective. He brings to Jesus a boy who has five small barley loaves of bread, 
two small fish, barley loaves. We're talking small pieces of bread. This is a little boy's lunch that he brings to Jesus. And on a human level, this makes no sense. This makes absolutely no sense. Forget David and Goliath. The odds here are microscopic. Only a miracle can do, can do some, anything here with this. But here's the thing. Andrew is not afraid to ask. Something else we talked about in our community group was this. Is there a right and a wrong way to pray? Is there a right or wrong way to pray? Aren't we often afraid to ask God for some things? Or even if we're not afraid, we don't bother because it may seem too self-serving. God, help me. God, do this for me. God, give me this. And, and we kind of think, oh, it's so selfish. And on, on a certain, that makes sense, right? Like if you heard someone praying, God, help me to win the Powerball lottery, you might roll your eyes and you might think, don't, don't pray that. What are you doing? Or maybe you don't pray something because you, think, you don't think God will answer it. Either he won't answer it or he can't answer it. But I do think there's a sense in which we don't have to worry too much about filtering our prayers to God, about getting them just right. Because what God wants is for us to come to him honestly and intimately. You know, my, my children, I have, I have four boys, and... They ask me for things every day that they absolutely should know by now that they are not going to get. It's like, it's like morning and they're like, hey, can we have ice cream? Or like I try to wake them up to go to school and they say, school's so boring, can I just stay home today? But when they do this, I don't say, you selfish little boy. How dare you ask me that? I love, I love that they feel free, open with me to ask whatever they want, even if their desires are selfish or unhealthy. I love that they ask me. That's what prayer is. Prayer is ultimately an expression of our relational dependence upon God. It's us saying, God, I need you and I want you. And we underestimate God's provision when we default to not praying. And we try to do everything on our own. Because what that leads to is worry, anxiety, and then when things don't go our way, we get bitter. So I want to ask you, what are your needs right now? What are your biggest needs right now? What do you need today? What are you worried about at this very moment? And here's the question. Are you bringing it to God in prayer and hoping in what he can do? Or are you bypassing God and trying to deal with it on your own? The suggestion today is this. Don't be afraid to ask. Andrew knew it was ridiculous. But he brings Jesus this little boy's lunch and then he watches Jesus do the impossible. What 200 denarii couldn't begin to do, Jesus does. And then the people watch as there are 12 baskets full of leftovers. Jesus provides not the bare minimum, 
but in abundance. I think another way that we often underestimate Jesus is to look at what we have to offer and think, man, I, I, I want to make a difference. Maybe I want to serve at church, but what do I have? Right? We, we look at our skills and our abilities, and it, it kind of looks like a little boy's lunch. It looks like, hey, there's not much here. It's these feelings of feeling small and inadequate. What good can I possibly offer? Other people, they are way more talented. They're way more capable and intelligent. God can use them because they're more successful. They're eloquent. They're beautiful. What, what do I have? But what we see again and again and again in Scripture is this, that God loves using not the influential, not the wealthy, not the powerful, but the overlooked the underestimated, the insignificant, the underdog, the hobbits to do great things. What would it look like if we had the boldness to put ourselves out there instead of being afraid and doubting what value we might bring? What could God do with our loaves of bread and fish? We underestimate Jesus in so many ways, but the biggest way we do that is seen in our passage. So the crowds, they witness this crazy miracle, and then they eat, and they eat, and they eat until they can't possibly eat another bite, and they watch as baskets are collected, of, of leftovers are collected, and the crowd is fired up about Jesus. Let's go. This is our guy. Look at verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus, he, he sees what they're trying to do, and then he has to kind of duck out and escape the crowd. But the next day, the crowd is persistent. They love this Jesus, so they look for him, and they find him the next day, and Jesus says, okay, you found me. Here we go. Let's talk. And then Jesus begins to explain who he is, and he tells them that miracle with the bread yesterday, that was pointing to me, the bread of life. Look at what Jesus says to them, and look at how the crowd responds. Take a look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And look at how they respond. Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? That doesn't make sense. And then look at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. The crowds, they underestimate Jesus. They see and they believe, because they've just seen it, that he can meet their material needs. But they reject Jesus when he points to a deeper need that they all have that only Jesus can meet. 
The crowd, they want the bread that Jesus gives, but not the bread that Jesus is. Let me say that again. They want the bread that Jesus gives, but not the bread that Jesus is. They don't trust that Jesus can meet their deepest needs, that they can surrender their entire lives, their identities to Jesus and find in him true happiness and satisfaction. They underestimate his true power. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we do that as well. Don't we often come to church, we make it out of bed, and we come into service or a community group because some of our needs are met? Maybe they're social needs in this lonely city of New York. You come to community group, or you come to church events, or you come to Sunday service because you can find community, you can find friends, maybe potential roommates or even romantic partners. So we come to church for the bread that Jesus gives, but do we have expectations and hopes for Jesus beyond that? Are we looking to him to meet our deepest needs? Do we come to Jesus not just for what we can get from him, but for him, the bread of life? Because what's clear is that the lesser miracle here is Jesus meeting our physical needs. The greater miracle is Jesus meeting our spiritual needs. But we often underestimate Jesus and his power. But you know what? It's not just his power, it's his priorities. It's his priorities. And what we've been saying throughout this series is that miracles in the Bible are never the end product but they're used as signs to reveal deeper truths about God. So Jesus, he never does miracles just because he can. He never does miracles just for the fun of it. He never uses his powers for his own benefit, his own comfort. He's hungry. He doesn't just use his powers to cook up a meal. Miracles are always performed to show us more of who God is and what he does to save us. Have you ever read through the book of Acts? And you read the book of Acts, kind of the story of how the church was established after Jesus is ascended to heaven. And if you read through the book of Acts, what you're going to notice is that on almost every page of Acts, there are miraculous works. There are signs, there are wonders, almost every page. The lame being healed, the dead being raised. Philip, he's, he's, he's teleported by the Holy Spirit. The Pharisee Saul, he, he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and he's temporarily blinded. People drop dead for lying to the apostles. The apostles, they're able to to preach miraculously in foreign languages. It's crazy. We see the Holy Spirit working in extraordinary ways all the time in the book of Acts. And then we look at our world today. And of course, God can still work in powerful and even unexplainable, inexplicable ways. But the prevalence of miracles today, it's not nearly what it was in the first century. Not even close. 
And what we need to ask ourselves is why? Why were all these crazy things happening in the first century, but now in our world today, in our modern world, it's not like that. And some Christians will say, well, we have to have more faith. We have to have more faith. We're not seeking God enough. If we believe more, then God will do what he did in the book of Acts. The church should be praying and expecting and hoping for God to do today what he did back then. And, and yes, while I do think that we should be expecting more from God, while we should be relying more on his power, while we should have more faith, I think even if we had all those things, I don't think the same miracles would be occurring today. And here's the biggest reason why. The same volume of miracles and degree of miracles are not taking place today. It's because the miracles were never the end, but they were a means to an end. And what is that end? That end is showing us Jesus. You know what the biggest difference between the church now and the church in the first century is? We have something that the church in the first century didn't have. We have a complete scripture. We have the Bible, the Old and New Testament. And God, in his wisdom, chose to reveal himself to us in these 66 books. Our doctrine of Scripture tells us that everything we need to know about God is revealed in the Bible. What that means is this. There's no further revelation necessary. There's nothing more about Jesus we need to know. There's no hidden Jesus that we need to discover. He has fully revealed himself to us in his word. So we don't need physical miracles to reveal God to us. Because he reveals himself to us in his word. So how do we primarily experience the power of God today? It's not by looking for him in the extraordinary, in the miraculous, but by finding him where he wants to be found, in his word, reading his word, hearing his word, studying his word. And this is what the crowds missed. They loved Jesus, the miracle worker, but when he tried to tell them more about himself... It was too hard. It was too confusing. It was too hard to grasp. It was too dry. It was too boring. It was too ordinary. Give us the miracles, Jesus. And after witnessing this crazy miracle, personally, the crowd ends up walking away from Jesus, the bread of life, the Savior of the world. Uh, there's a book, if you haven't read it yet, I think it's a must-read for all Christians, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Um, and in this book, he talks about an Air Force officer that he once met. Uh, Lewis, here's what he writes. He says this, I remember once when I had been given a talk to the RAF, an old, hard-bitten officer got up and said, I have no use for all that stuff, but mind you, I'm a religious man too. I know there's a God. I felt him. Out alone in the desert at night, the tremendous mystery, and that's just why I don't believe all your neat little dogmas and formulas about him. To anyone who's met the real thing, they all seem so petty and pedantic and unreal. 
So what this officer is saying is this. Hey, you got to meet the real God. Not just the religious doctrines, not the Bible studies, the real God. And, and C.S. Lewis's answer to, the, to his response to him blew me away because he agrees with him, but here's what he says. Now, in a sense, I quite agreed with the man. I think he had probably had a real experience of God in the desert. And when he turned from that experience to the Christian creeds, I think he really was turning from something real to something less real. In the same way, if a man has once looked at the Atlantic Ocean from the beach and then goes and looks at a map of the Atlantic, he also will be turning from something real to something less real, turning from real waves to a bit of colored paper. And here's, here's the clincher. He says this, the map is admittedly only colored paper, but there are two things you have to remember about it. In the first place, it's based on what hundreds and thousands of people have found out by sailing the real Atlantic. In that way, it has behind it masses of experience, just as real as the one you could have had from the beach. Only, while yours would be a single glimpse, the map fits all those different experiences together. In the second place, if you want to go anywhere, the map is absolutely necessary. As long as you're content with walks on the beach, your own glimpses are far more fun than looking at a map. But the map is going to be more use than walks on the beach if you want to get to America. So two weeks ago, Pastor Michael Carrion, he preached on John 9, and, and he said this, the Pharisees in John 9, they were so small-minded when it came to Jesus' power. So for them, anything that deviated from their system of belief, they refused to accept as true. So they saw this man who was born blind, and then they brought his parents in, and, and they said, hey, is this your son? Was he really born blind? And the parents are like, yeah, that's our son. He was born blind. So they confirmed it. They're looking with their own eyes at this man who was born blind, and miraculously, he's looking back at them. But because Jesus did this on the Sabbath... They say, this can't be from God. This can't be from God. They're so stuck in their theological positions that they can't see what God is doing. And we need to be careful that we don't do that. Where we're so boxed into our theological positions that we miss what God might be doing outside of it or in ways that we can't understand. But we also need to make sure that we don't overcorrect and think that doctrine and theology are not as important as the real experience of Jesus and his power. We're really putting the cart before the horse when we continue to look beyond the ordinary ways that God reveals himself to us and we just look for God in the extraordinary, in the miraculous. It's in his word that the Holy Spirit wants to show us Jesus and make us love him. It's in the study, the proclamation, the teaching of the word that we will believe in Jesus and grow in faith. My last point is that the crowd misunderstands the purpose of Jesus. Look at verse 15. 
Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So rather than surrendering themselves to a king, here's what the crowd tries to do. They try to force him to be their earthly king. And there's such an irony here. You're trying to force someone to be your king. So the question is, who's the real king? So you or, 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 or him? They're forcing rather than submitting. And what we see is that the crowd wants Jesus on their terms. They don't really want a king. They want a problem solver. They want a life improver. They, they want someone to help them out, to overthrow the Roman oppressors, to provide food. Man, wouldn't it be great if he did this every day? Provide food and comforts for them. And that's ultimately what they're seeking from Jesus. That's all they want from him. Nothing more. How can Jesus improve my life? So religion for them, it's an add-on. It's a supplement. I'll stay as long as, as I see the benefits. But when I'm asked to give too much or when it becomes too inconvenient for me, I'm out. Here's the thing. That's not submitting to a king. You know, the context of this passage is the Passover. Look at verse 4. John says in verse 4, Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This takes place during the Passover. And this wasn't a throwaway detail. It's a huge context clue that shows us the whole purpose of Jesus' mission. So Jesus' mission, it's not to make the world a better home for us. So John wants us to view this meal in the context of Passover. And what was the Passover meal? Remember in the Old Testament? You know the story. The Passover, it was meant to be eaten by pilgrims who were ready to leave, who were ready to travel. Exodus 12 tells us that the meal was to be eaten with cloaks tucked into belts, with sandals on your feet, with staffs in your hand. This was a to-go meal. This was not a meal that we're going to enjoy together here. It was a meal that was meant to be taken in a hurry. So Jesus presents himself here as the bread of life. He's the manna in the wilderness. He's the Passover lamb. And part of why people leave is because Jesus begins to say some very strange things. He begins to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Take a look at verse 51. Here's what Jesus says, and here's ultimately why everyone leaves. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Jesus, what? What are you talking? That's creepy, dude. Like, what? 
Eating your flesh, drinking your... What do you mean? That makes no sense. Jesus, what are you talking about? It's too weird for people. It's creepy. But what Jesus is doing here is he's presenting in this miracle a new exodus. He's the new redeemer who conquers Satan, sin, and death through his life, death, and resurrection. He's the true Passover lamb who slaughtered on the cross. He covers us with his blood so that God's wrath will pass over us. Christ leads us through the wilderness of this life. His entire mission is to bring us home with him. You know, Jesus is not ultimately in the business of building a better and more comfortable life for us here on earth. His purpose is to bring us exiles to our true home, to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth forever. If this life is it, if this is all we get, then it's a handful of decades and then it's over. But in Jesus we find an eternal inheritance that is beyond anything we can imagine or hope for. Our deepest need is that we were created by God and for God. We are created to be his beloved children, but because of sin, we are lost children. And Jesus' purpose is to rescue us and to lead us home. Friends, this world is not our home. It is not the end. His purpose for us is so much more. How will we respond? Will we continue to try to force him to be king on our terms, giving us a better life here? Will we walk away from him entirely? Or will we respond the way the disciples do? At the end, it's just Jesus and his disciples, and he asks them this question, do you want to leave too? And here's how they respond. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Friends, Jesus says, I am here, the bread of life. I am here for you. May our answer to him be, to whom else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope and the life that we have in your son, Jesus. We thank you for abundant and amazing grace that though we are undeserving, we have in Jesus a savior who loves us to the very end. So help us to hope in Jesus, the bread of life. Help us to understand and grasp his power, his priorities, and his purpose for us. We thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.